Natalia Pomp. I'm a senior fellow at the Migration Policy Institute, and I'm very pleased to welcome everyone to the call, Centering English Learners and Schools' Responses to the COVID-19 Pandemic. We are um, very pleased to be able to do this call. I think all of us who are in the field have noted that um, the educational inequities that sort of beset English learners have been magnified by this pandemic, and so there are um, many, many uh, questions about how to serve them best, and we hope to start talking today about many solutions. Uh, our, our responses are going to be on a policy level, uh, and we really do hope it begins to spark conversation at the district level and the state level about what policies could be adopted to support the best learning for English learners during this time. First, we have a housekeeping note, a couple of housekeeping notes. If you have any technical problems, please email events at migrationpolicy.org or call 202-266-1929. We're going to have questions and answers at the end of the call. We hope to leave plenty of time for that because we think there'll be a lot of them. It won't be a voice Q&A where you call in, but we'd like for you to type any questions you have into the question and answer or chat box on the right side of your screen and send it to the host uh, or me or email it to events at migrationpolicy.org. Or you can tweet your questions to at migrationpolicy or hashtag MPI discuss. So, with that said, we are looking for your questions that are going to start anytime soon, and I want to introduce uh, briefly all our presenters. We are very fortunate to have two of the authors of one of our publications on COVID, Melissa Lazarin and Julie Sugarman, who actually um, have been doing the work researching what's happening around the country and thinking through what policies are should be and could be affected by this pandemic to better education for English learners. Then we're very fortunate to have two speakers from the field who are going to talk about particularly what's happening in their locales in the state of California and in Nashville Public Schools, their responses. Uh, Shelley Spiegel-Coleman from California and Molly Hegwood, who is the Executive Director of English Learners at Metro Nashville Public Schools. So before we start, I just want to say a little bit about Migration Policy Institute uh, National Center on Immigrant Integration Policy. That's us. Uh, there, there's a wide variety of folks in our audience today, and not all of whom uh, have worked in the past with us. Uh, but we do work in education and training from early childhood through adult education and workforce development. We've been focused in the past on a large array of issues facing English learners beginning with the issue of language access. And we are, uh, our work is focused on the integration of uh, English learners, immigrant students and their families into, um, into the institutions of the United States when they come here. Um, moving ahead, Bef uh, I hope you all have had the opportunity to see two of our publications that sort of form the basis for the work we're going to talk about today and the ideas we're going to talk about today. One is um, a policy brief, Educating English Learners During the COVID-19 Pandemic, 
policy ideas for states and school districts. You can you see the, the bit.ly there, you see where you can go and find that on our website. Also, there was a commentary, a shorter um, commentary that focused on what the inequities uh, that are facing English learners are and how many nonprofit organizations around the country are working with school districts to mitigate these challenges. You'll find both of those on our, um, on our website. I also just want to point out right now that this is the first in a series on the effects of the pandemic. We'll be doing three more, uh, and you, you can watch out for information on when that will happen. So, um, let me start by present, uh, by introducing uh, our two MPI folks on the call today. Melissa Lafarine uh, has vast experience working on issues related to immigrant children and English learners. She is a senior advisor for K-12 policy at the National Center on Immigrant Integration Policy at MPI. Uh, her background includes a wide range of educational policy issues related to English learners. And she has um, an impressive record of employment at several organizations in Washington, D.C., focusing on policy. Then I also want to introduce Julie Sugarman, who is a senior policy analyst for pre-K-12 education at MPI at the center. Uh, Julie has done research for a number of years on topics that affect immigrant and English learner students. Uh, I bet many of you have read some of her work. Uh, it's wide ranging also, um, looking at issues ranging from funding all the way to direct uh, high quality instructional services for, for these children, uh, and looking at the needs in particular of newcomer students. Uh, Julie has worked in Washington, D.C. Um, and was a longtime researcher at the Center for Applied Linguistics. So I'm going to turn this over now to um, Melissa, who is going to talk about some of the work that she and Julie have done. Good morning. Thank you, Delia. Um, I will go ahead and jump in, um, but great to have so many people on the line. Um, as you know, many of the country's school districts are not open in person, or many are offering a hybrid uh, option for parents and, and children. Um, the move to remote instruction since March has left English learners behind. And I'm sure I don't need to belabor this point since we all have been hearing the stories of how students, especially low-income Black, Latino, uh, immigrant, and English learners Students with disabilities as well are facing some extreme challenges with remote learning. Uh, there are many reasons for this technological language access, balancing family responsibilities, economic stress, that these groups are disproportionately or more, and the fact that these groups are more, the, uh, are disproportionately more affected um, by the virus. But very briefly, I'm just going to outline three of the major impacts uh, of COVID on ELs uh, with respect to education. So the first is uh, English language development. The obvious is that ELs are spending less instructional time on English language development and formal instruction. However, there are somewhat less concrete opportunities that ELs have lost access to, or at least have a lot less of. 
one important component of Yale instructional programs, um, but about but that school offers in general is facilitating opportunities to engage in collaborative peer learning and productive talk in English with classmates. This is really critical to oral language development and many ELs may not get as many opportunities to speak and hear English or even write and read it outside of school. And so as a result, their English language development may stall. And some of this is visible in research on how more typical summer months affect EL's vocabulary, um, not so much the one that we just had. Uh, and there is also some research on chronic absenteeism, which included a small sample of EL's um, that found that EL's who were chronically absent in kindergarten and first grade scored lower on the EL, ELP assessment in second and third grade. So some of these effects may be, may be here for some time, um, even after the pandemic is resolved. Second, academic development. Um, NWEA uh, uh, put out uh, some, some estimates early in the pandemic, uh, and these estimates were really focused on the effects of the spring 2020 school closures. Um, which did not fully take into account what schooling looks like now, this new academic year. Um, these are also estimates for all students in general, um, so not specific to ELs. Um, and another analysis considered the quality of remote instruction and the degree to which students participate, participated in remote instruction or which, and students who participate in remote instruction of average quality could lose three to four months of learning um, and possibly seven to 11 months with lower quality distance learning and 12 to 14 months if they do not participate in remote instruction at all, which um, we know is happening for a subset of, of students. There are also estimates of what this may mean for uh, high school dropouts. An additional 9% of high school students or 1.1 million could drop out. Um, and we feel the stakes are especially high for newcomer ELs uh, in secondary schools, which who were already facing a great deal of challenges under nor normal circumstances. Um, and I should say that these are the estimates in both of these accounts are, um, you know, are estimate to be more for black and Hispanic and low income students. Um, third, uh, finally, the social emotional development impacts immigrants are disproportionately represented in occupations critical to the nation's response to the pandemic. They must often choose between their job and homeschooling and childcare. Uh, older immigrant youth we're seeing might be managing their siblings, schooling and care along with their own. Um, immigrants are disproportionately affected by some of the job losses that we've seen in the last few months. And immigrant communities are especially vulnerable to the virus. Um, it has perhaps not been so clear and so visible 
um, than now how students quote unquote non-academic world affects their learning and how inequity of opportunity and discrimination and racism affect schooling every day. So as, as dire as the circumstances are, this is a real wake up call and a really a unique opportunity uh, to modify and improve how our school systems work for EOs. Um, we hope that is a little bit of the silver lining um, that comes about is that this is a new opportunity. Um, and with that, we're going, I'm, we're going to turn to my colleague, Julie Sugarman, to review some policy recommendations. Thanks, Melissa. And uh, I am going to go through the policy recommendations really very quickly. Um, these are all discussed in the um, brief that we put out last week. And um, there was a, a slide earlier with the, uh, the URL for you to go to. So any additional de um, details you'll be able to find there, or we can talk about in the Q&A. So our first set of policy recommendations focuses on providing instructional support for English learners. Uh, as Melissa said, many school districts started this year entirely remotely, and for those that are still working on their reopening plans, our re recommendation is to prioritize ELs for in-person instruction when it's safe to have students back on campus. Related to this, ELs will need increased learning time for language and academic enrichment, which may include before school, after school, or Saturday programs, and of course summer school in 2021. Many districts have worked extremely hard to pivot to online learning, but we worry that too many teachers still don't know how to support ELs remotely. Both EL specialists and general education teachers should receive training on instructional strategies to support comprehension and language development. They also need to know how to select and adapt supplementary learning materials to ensure they're appropriate for ELs. Perhaps most importantly, school systems should be facilitating opportunities for teachers to share what's been working for them with peers inside and outside their school. While most of the public's focus has been on schools and districts, state education agencies are important partners to ensure a systemic and equity-focused response to school building closures. For example, schools are provisionally identifying new students as ELs in cases where they can't do the formal testing required for an official identification. States should be tracking how many students are being provisionally identified to ensure that all schools are following the guidelines. Earlier this month, a coalition of education equity advocates suggested that Congress enact a new regulation called a maintenance of equity provision to ensure that states taking federal dollars shield low-income districts from the brunt of budget cuts. Whether that's taken up by Congress or not, states should make sure that their most under-resourced districts, and including ones serving a large number of ELs, don't face disproportionate funding cuts. Districts can take the same approach with their most under-resourced schools. Likewise, states should be sure that discretionary dollars from state and federal relief funds go to meet EL needs. And this would be a good time for states to review whether their state funding formulas and grants provide adequate funding for ELs. We know they're working in difficult circumstances, but many schools and districts have not done a good job engaging immigrant families and parents with limited English proficiency. Schools and districts should ensure they prioritize meaningful two-way communication about remote learning and reopening, including making sure they have sufficient translation and interpretation services and that those services are consistently used. 
Educational leaders should also heed the lessons from the last six months to recognize the importance of providing parents with digital literacy instruction to help them support their children. One important strategy in this area is for school systems to build partnerships with community-based organizations who can provide invaluable services, reaching out to immigrant families that may be struggling, and providing supports that schools don't have the bandwidth to provide. Policymakers will need to address how interruptions to the normal cycle of English language proficiency testing may affect the data we rely on. Many states count students for funding purposes in September or October, but if new enrollees from the last six months only have provisional identification as ELLs, they may not count as ELLs for supplementary state and federal funding. Most states have not yet announced policies for how to ensure those counts are correct. Although states won't have to report accountability data for last year, they should start thinking about how to make sure the English language proficiency indicator they use for accountability will provide accurate and fair judgments of student language development over the next year or two. For example, some states don't give students credit for ELP growth if they have exceeded a maximum number of years to achieve proficiency, and those states might want to reconsider that for the near future. Finally, states should ensure that schools are collecting consistent data on EL engagement in remote learning, as this will be an important early metric for getting a handle on how much learning loss has taken place. So Dahlia, that's what we uh, wrote about in the paper, and I'm really looking forward to hearing Shelley and, and Molly talking about how this all looks on the ground. Yeah, Julie, thank you. As you can see, um, there we have lots of questions uh, as we look at the future of English learners in the near future. And uh, we also have what we think a number of good policy recommendations that states and districts should um, consider. So in that vein, I want to introduce um, Shelley Spiegel-Coleman, who will be talking about what's happening in California. Shelley is currently strategic advisor to Californians Together, but you may know her in her uh, previous position, long-held position, where she was founder and executive director of Californians Together. Uh, Shelley's had a long career serving English learners, uh, and um, we're fortunate that she's decided to stick around and continue to do the work. Uh, Shelley, can I turn it over to you? Yes, thank you so much, Delia and Julie and Melissa, for the important report that you released last week, and for the. We are looking forward to your upcoming um, additional uh, reports in the series. I think they really help us in the field tremendously. As, as Delia and Melissa and Julie said, we in California were very concerned about the spring uh, distance learning and the disproportional negative effect on English learners. In California, um, uh, at, at the beginning of July, every single school district had to submit a report on what they did for distance learning in their school districts. And what we chose to do as Californians together is to review those reports. And you can see there's a bit.ly there where you can get the full report for, for us, or you can go to our website and download it also. And in the report, we read 79, we read 79 school district reports that represented 44% of all the English learners in California, 35% of all the students in California. You can see how we made the determination of selecting those districts. We scored for six different components designated and integrated ELD, that's structured ELD, as well as um, uh, English language development during content delivery, 
live interactive instruction, bridging the digital divide, family collaboration, social emotional support, and early uh, childhood education services, if any. And so we developed our own uh, rating scales. And I just want to show you uh, two of those for you to get a sense of what might be in the report and why um, we continue to do the work in this area because of our concerns. You can see that for English language development, as was said by Melissa, uh, we heard anecdotally that it was almost non-existent. And this has kind of proved it out in 39% of the districts, they said nothing about English language development are very minimal. In terms of live interactive instruction for the reasons, again, that Melissa stated about the need for interaction for language development, this raised a, a high concern for us, and that was that 55% of the districts said, didn't even mention live interactive instruction was offered or very minimal, and only 15% of all the districts stated how much time. Because of that, uh, we were uh, very excited that uh, during this period of time we did receive a grant from our California Department of Education that allowed us uh, three years to work on implement implementation of a new state policy for English learners in California that really uplifts the benefits of bilingualism and biliteracy and high quality instruction and coherence in programs across districts. And so with that project, um, we pivoted to really trying to support districts right now for distance learning, and we developed this tool. And again, um, there is a bit.ly on here for you to be able to get the full tool. I'm just going to show a couple of parts of it. But what I think is really um, uh, helpful for districts across the state is that we looked at 11 best practices for English learners for distance learning. And then we gave concrete examples of actions that districts and schools could do to, in, to implement those best practices. And so just for example, the other two columns really, if you're not in California, uh, don't worry about those other two columns. But um, for instance, and as Julie, as uh, Melissa had said, it is critical that, there, uh, that the districts create schedules and resource allocations for the students who have the greatest needs and really to provide guidance and assistance especially for the provisions of English language development. So that's the best practice, right? And so some of the examples of what we have seen, the, uh, the better uh, of what districts are doing, um, those that are doing much better, is really designating uh, dedicated uh, English language development time, no matter what the delivery approach is, either distance learning, hybrid, or in person. And to make um, intentional intentional language development during uh, content lessons. The other thing is to provide extra periods of time for small groups, so not taking away from the full school schedule, but extra time. And you see some of the others, and in, in, including extended learning enrichment sessions for students in their home language. The second best practice is really to establish relationships and mechanisms for ongoing stakeholder input. Um, during this period of time, it really is important that teachers, parents, and even high school students have the opportunity to give input on how best to, to do distance learning. And um, in California, we have a requirement when there are 50 English learners in a district that there's a district English learner advisory committee. And those meetings did continue in the spring, and they're now continuing in the fall. 
And what sub-districts have found out is that in using Zoom, there is an element of Zoom where at the bottom, where at the bottom bar that you can install called interpreters. And if you click on that, a menu will come up with different languages for which you can offer translation for meetings while they are in progress so that no matter what language your parents speak, or at least the top maybe five languages, uh, parents can be engaged in those meetings that are discussing the specific needs of their students. Um, we have heard from districts that this has actually increased attendance at those meetings and something that we think should be um, definitely considered. And um, especially for students who were minimally or non-engaged during the spring, we think that really uh, there's a real need to do connectivity, to connect with them and to engage with them as to what their needs are. Um, the other best practice um, with ideas for actions was really to um, expect the need for flexibility and change of plans and to communicate regularly with our families. And so I talked to you about the, the translation ability for the district or the school site meetings. The other is for teachers to connect with their parents. And there are, there are apps now that teachers can use and administrators can use I'm not pushing it, but one is talking points where the app allows the teacher to send text messages to parents in English. It translates into the language of the parent. The parent responds in their home language. It translates back to the teachers in English. These, these apps generally um, have translations for over 100 different languages, and teachers really need to use them to really be able to communicate with the parents in their language and at a time when parents are available. Um, uh, the other thing is that it really is important to repurpose any bilingual staff that you have in your district or your school, be it your counselors, be it your front office staff, be it your paraeducators, be it your homeschool liaison, so that they become engaged with parents in their language to support them, to hear from them, to connect with them, and to make sure that they're engaged um, and that the help they need is provided. And so that you can see from this tool, and there are, uh, I only went over three of the best practices. There's other, eight, there's eight there with some concrete ideas. We hope you'll see them as valuable and that you download them and use them. To put it all together, I did want to show you a schedule from one of our school districts, Azusa Unified School District in Southern California. You can see from this is a distance learning schedule for TK through sixth grade. And you can see they have set aside this designated time for ELD, which is in addition to the regular distance learning schedule for other students. So from 8 to 8.45 every morning, you have your TK through third grade students getting ELD, while fourth through sixth grade students are getting special ed support. They did this purposefully just in case English learners or special ed students are duly identified so that you see later on in the day it flips there's additional uh, period of time there. So um, fourth through sixth grade students get ELD and the TK3 students get their special ed um, support. The other blocks of time are live interactive instruction. They cover all areas of the curriculum. And then most importantly, there's a half an hour every day of a teacher schedule where they're connecting with families, be it one-on-one, -on -one, be it small groups, students one-on-one, -on -one, very small groups, but again, that issue of having a regular scheduled time where parents know they can get their teachers and teachers know they can reach out to parents. So for us in California, 
Uh, we want to offer you, from Californians together, we want to offer you some of our tools and some of our materials that we've developed in the area of English learners and distance learning on our website. And we like to say, when teachers have that special relationship with students and parents feel confident that their children are getting the help they need, then we will know that school is in session. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much, Shelley. Uh, that was a lot of information packed into a short time, and already there are lots of questions coming up about some of what you talked about. Um, next, we're going to turn to a local district, Tamale Hagwood, as I, uh, uh, whom I introduced earlier as Executive Director of English Learners for Metro Nashville Public Schools. Uh, <clears throat> Molly started her career as an English learner elementary teacher, and she went on to become an English de uh, language development coach. She also has a particular interest in working with parents of English learners. So we're eager to hear from you, Molly, about what you've been doing in Nashville Public Schools as a response to this pandemic. Having me today, um, I just wanted to share before I get started my contact information because I'm going to touch on some various things that I know you'll have follow-up questions about. So my email is there. I also have my Twitter account that's a personal one and the Twitter account for our office. I'm um, always posting various things about this work, so please um, feel free to reach out to me. I want to start quickly with um, kind of the vision that drives everything that we do at our office, and, and I think you'll really see this play out in some of the, the things that I'm going to share about the work that we've been doing. We want to make sure that our EL students have their social, emotional, cultural, linguistic, and academic skills necessary to excel in higher education work and work in life. I also want to share some of the numbers about the students that we have here in Metro Nashville Public Schools. People are always surprised to see um, that we have over 20,000 limited English proficient students in our district. Limited English proficient is the LEP acronym, so you'll hear me use that a few times. Um, the limited English proficient group encompasses those active English learners that are receiving those direct services every day and those transitional students who have exited the program and in the, are in the years of where monitoring those students. When we speak about um, the systems and structures that we use to reopening our schools, we do ensure that, uh, that our 20,000 LEP students um, needs would be met across our 161 schools in Nashville um, that span over 526 square miles in Davidson County. So during this brief time that we have together, I'm going to share how MNPS um, incorporated English learners in our district-wide reopening, how we prioritized the needs of English learners, and how we leveraged our community and family partnerships in our reopening. When we click, quickly closed in March, um, as the others in the group have shared, we immediately highlighted some of the gaps in our services to English learners, and we knew that we had to address these issues at a systematic level to improve the experience for our English learners. So as we replanned our reopening for August of 2020, our director of schools made it clear to central office teams and school leaders that we must plan for equity for all learners in the reopening and specifically English learners. So as we broke out into our planning teams, 
each work team had to outline how they were going to specifically meet the, meet the needs of English learners and families, and also how they were going to include interpretation services. So I'm going to highlight four areas that our district really focused on to ensure these supports were present. We have um, instructional alignment in our professional development, uh, technology support, and device distribution. Social-emotional learning with spe uh, specifically a navigator role that was created for our students. And then our facilities. How did we ensure that English learners' needs were met in reopening the school buildings and also registering and assessing our students? When it comes to instructional alignment and professional development, we started this at a systems level. We knew that at the district level, we had to provide clear messaging around instructional supports for our English learners so that teachers and schools could carry this out in real time. We utilized the back to school time as we were renormed district-wide on this messaging to teachers. We provided the same message about utilizing language supports, accommodations, and grade level curriculum in all of the content area presentations. We assigned an EL instructional coach to each content team, math, science, social studies, to ensure that the supports for English learners were consistent across all content areas and curriculum. As a district, we also created virtual learning playbooks for teachers and school leaders. In these playbooks, we outlined the roles and responsibilities for working with English learners. And we specifically noted that any time there was a mention of a parent contact in those playbooks, that we added the process for utilizing an interpreter to ensure that schools followed this process in the virtual learning environment. In the spring, we quickly realized we needed to do more to provide this equity and technology support, um, digital literacy, and device distribution. Many of our families were given a laptop, and they did not know how to utilize the device well. Our district reopened over the summer and decided to make changes to better serve our EL families when we started up in the fall. Laptops and hotspots were distributed at schools. We also added this distribution at all of our real EL registration hubs, and we opened six technology support hubs. When devices were picked up at the registration hubs in the technology support areas, we were able to walk the families through using the devices one-on-one. -on -one. After the two, first two weeks of school, school, we analyzed the data and knew that our families really needed more. Um, we had some absences. We had some families that weren't engaging yet. Um, so we opened up six virtual learning tech support hubs in areas of the district with the highest number of English learners. We were able to have folks walk in and provide support to families one-on-one. -on -one. This support ranged from turning on a computer and logging in all the way to accessing our virtual learning platforms and submitting assignments. Another thing that we realized that we needed to quickly change was our help desk. So in the spring, families were able to call a help desk line and get support for technology. The original phone line had an English speaker that answered, and then the English speaker then would connect, then connect with an interpreter. We realized that this was a barrier for our families, um, and it was just one extra step that was making it so that not all families could access this support. So we created a second line specifically for families that needed an interpreter. 
So on this line, the family called in. They got the interpreter first. Um, the interpreter kind of scripted out the problem. And then the interpreter called in IT for support. This made it so that that anxiety level was down for the family, and we were immediately able to connect them with the speaker before we were able to add in the English speaker. I want to also share a little bit about the systems level that I talked about, where we really made plans to ensure that we streamlined our interpretation and translation services. We wanted our families to re we want our families to receive information at the same time as their native English-speaking peers. We're continuing to work on this. It's obviously not perfect, but we're trying to make it a system focus, and so it's not left up for the school to scramble on the back end. So one example of this system-wide focus is our translation and interpretation that we embedded into this role called a navigator. The navigator is a mentor and advocate for a small group of students. As you can see in the picture there, they navigate the different parts of the school system, and it creates this two-way communication channel. When this role was rolled out, we said, hold on a second, we want to make sure that that Translation and interpretation is planned out on the front end for this role, that at the school level you have a plan for this, and there's also a catch to make sure this happens when these when these uh, things are playing out at the school level. So the a school had to create a plan for their navigator role, and as you can see there, part of their action plan was that they had to list how they were going to utilize an interpreter, and the plan was not approved until they did that. And then as they logged the calls each week, there was a place there for them to indicate whether they used an interpreter. And if they didn't, why not? We created pre-written scripts that went out to the schools each week. The scripts were sent to the schools and translated in the top seven language languages to ensure that every student had that translation need. And we wanted to make sure that it was a consistently used. And finally, our community partners. Um, we rely heavily on our, commu our community partners for their communication with families and their expertise. We are continuing to build on these partnerships in order to better serve our families. Use this part these partnerships as a way to receive feedback about our programming and for two-way communication with our families. The community partners that we work with are often in close contact with families. So we utilize this relationship to keep our pulse on how parents are feeling and to get feedback. We strive to front load our community partners with information so they are able to communicate updates and changes if families ask. We also utilize their expertise and connections with families to stay in touch with, with our families. We have several examples here of our um, community partners. I, I, I would hate to not mention a couple of them. Uh, Conexion Americas, Hispanic Family Foundation, Tennessee Immigrant Refugee Rights Coalition, and Nashville International Center for Empowerment. And so we really work closely with these organizations to ensure that we're providing school-level support, but then we can turn it over to them for these wraparound supports for our families that they're really needed during this time. So that closes out my part. So thank you guys. And again, my contact information will be shared, and I'd be happy to answer any other questions about some of the things that we discussed. Thank you so much, Molly. Uh, lots going on in Nashville, and there were lots of questions that popped up about your work. Uh, we're going to open it up for Q&A. I'd like to remind you to um, type any questions you have into the Q&A or chat box. 
on the right of your screen and send it to the host or email to events at migrationpolicy.org. Um, and keep the questions coming in. There are lots of them. Also, you can tweet your questions to at migrationpolicy or hashtag MPI discuss. Um, so there were many, many questions about translation and the translation apps, lots of technical questions. Uh, some of the technical questions, if you look, were answered in the chat box by other people. But I'd like to ask, um, in particular, um, Julie and, excuse me, not you, Juliet, uh, Molly and Shelley, and Julie and, and Melissa, please chime in if you've got something else. But beyond the sort of technical aspect of translations, what kind of environment do you have to set up with the parents? Molly, you, you kind of, you did talk about it, but what would you emphasize that would enrich translations beyond the apps? What else did you do to make sure parents were really understanding what was going on? Either one of you, Molly or Shelley, or both. I'd be happy to start us off on that. Um, what we were striving to do and made improvements, and again, it wasn't perfect, but we really made it so that a family could reach an interpreter when they needed it, a live interpreter, a person that works in our district, so that they were not having to navigate through an English speaker first. So any time that we could set up that situation made it so that we were better able to serve the families. So in those outdoor tech sites, again, it's the same thing. The interpreters are the first ones that are greeting those families. And then this is Shelley. Um, one of our school districts um, set up meetings solely for newcomer families, for parents of newcomers, and they are having those meetings regularly. They're doing it through Zoom and using the interpretation ele uh, element of the Zoom um, app. And um, they were very surprised. Actually, their first meeting, they had over 100 parents that came on, newcomer parents. And so I think when you're targeting very specific groups and there are very specific needs and you make that known, um, I think there is a receptivity to it. And um, so, uh, yeah. Thanks. Um, Julie, a question that you might begin answering, and again, everybody jump in. It was a question about how you begin to cost out the extra amount it takes to address the needs of English learners during this time. Um, people are asking um, at the federal level, at the state level, how much more do we need to add to the budget to make sure English learners are, are taken care of during this time? Um, if not specific numbers, what should be some considerations? Julie, and then Shelley, you might want to jump in on that too. Sure, yeah, this is a, a question I get a lot and one that's extremely hard to answer because, um, you know, EL uh, education doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's part of the whole um, enterprise of what the school does. So if um, funding is not adequate for the schools, you know, in general, that's going to uh, really have an effect on the English learners also. Um, you know, we see uh, English learner states, states, almost all states provide additional funding for English learners and, and the um, weights that they pro offer are anything from maybe 1% to, uh, to doubling the amount uh, to 100%. Um, and it really depends on what the, what models are used and, and again, how adequate um, the, the funding is in general. Um, but I think what's really important at this time is to make sure that there are enough English learner specialists 
um, whether those are certified EL teachers or paraprofessionals or however the, um, the states and the districts uh, do that, or bilingual teachers, um, to really make sure that those positions are protected because I think um, schools are going to really focus on, you know, we have to have our, our regular um, full-time equivalent of, of how many, uh, you know, our ratio of one teacher to so many students and uh, some of the support teachers may be uh, the ones that schools look to um, to balance their budgets. And, and I think it's just really critical that we advocate very strongly or that, that schools and, and communities advocate very strongly um, for how important it is to have those EL specialists remain in the schools because of how uh, disproportionately great the impact has been on English learners. Shelley, did you want to add anything there? Uh, basic that basic needs such as English language development, access to a full curriculum, and um, uh, language development during content instruction, those ought to be base program requirements. And whether or not you have an extra a pot of money or not, schools and districts ought to be offering those explicitly in their plans. Now, to um, make up for learning loss and have the additional periods and so on and so forth, there may be costs there. But the base program ought to attend to language development, access to content, and um, core and access to core courses. So, I mean, I think those are things we all should look for with base funding. Okay, thank you. Um, Shelley and Molly, um, both of you have terrific responses, I think, very full responses to the needs of English learners in your state and district, uh, more so than many other districts and states that we've seen. Um, you, you both talked about the planning that goes into this, but what else has to exist? Did, did this happen in a vacuum? Suddenly uh, you were supporting English learners in a different way. What was happening before that led to, led to or, or enhanced the ability of your teams to come together, do planning, and then carry out these special supports for English learners. So I'll start um, with this one. I think I, I have to agree this was not something that happened because COVID happened. These structures were already starting to develop. One of the most important things that we have worked on in metro schools is the relationships part and building relationships with other departments in MNPS so that they prioritize English learners and then also building relationships with our community partners so that we're able to, when these things arise, navigate um, them quickly and really working to build that, that knowledge level of all departments and all schools so that they are able to navigate through these issues when they arise. I think it's the same across California. The districts that had um, that had mechanisms and people in place and structures that were supporting and um, delivering high quality services to English learners, those districts were much quicker in terms of being able to pivot to being able to incorporate that into their distance learning. But districts have been very creative. There was one of our districts who um, uh, went out and hired a a bilingual counselor specifically to uh, reach out to newcomer students at the secondary level, knowing that some of those students probably would not engage unless they were reached out to one by one. And this counselor has reached out to over 75 families in their, it's a small school district in our Central Valley, 
and has maintained contact with those parents and those students weekly on a weekly basis. So it, it's that district that already had many things in place but was very worried about newcomer students, whether or not they'd be coming back to school in the fall and really put in place this, this very, very talented, very compassionate um, school counselor that is their link to the school. May I also just comment, Shelley, that the California Department of Education has a long tradition of working with advocacy groups such as yourselves to, yeah. to begin to shape uh, responses. So well, I I, yes, and Delia, I do want to say that we are very engaged with them now with that project that I talked about, EL Rise, which has allowed us to do a lot of really good work to pivoting in this area. And if it wasn't for that, um, our services would, um, would, would not be as good as they are right now. So the support from our department has been tremendous. Thank you. So, Melissa, um, as you and Julie looked at um, uh, what was happening in states and districts, would you say that there are some, some key trends uh, among the states and districts, or is every response different depending on the district and state and situation? I mean, I, I think uh, I think the key trend is that we're not seeing enough. I, I think the folks that we have on on this call are certainly uh, sharing some of the best examples that we've seen and know about. And um, you know, I, I think that what is disheartening is that we aren't seeing enough of that kind of innovation of thinking and. Uh, level of partnership with CBOs, with the community. Um, but I do think that something that is is certainly, I think certainly uh, school districts are aware of the problem and the challenges. They, I think there has been a lot of effort to uh, supply uh, access to technology and, and hotspots. Uh, I think there's been a lot of work on that. I think it's not perfect by any means, but I do think uh, a great deal of the district spent a lot of time working on that over the summer. And there is also appears to be a trend to really focus on when in-person instruction is possible to uh, really bring in uh, some populations of students that would benefit most from in-person instruction. So I think we are seeing that message get across. So I don't know if you want to add more. No, I would agree. And, and I think another thing uh, is uh, a trend, with maybe not such a great one, is, um, well, um, that schools seem to be on their own for the most part. And, and um, a lot of folks I've been hearing talking on Twitter have been asking questions um, that I consider to be things that uh, you know, schools and districts and states really should be coordinating on and should be, um, you know, giving a, a message about, you know, what are the, um, you know, what are the, the key strategies to use or, you know, how should we be approaching uh, certain kinds of assessment tasks or, or that sort of thing. So um, I'm, I've been very interested to follow all these things on Twitter, and I think it's fantastic that teachers are getting support from each other on Twitter and Facebook and I'm sure on other um, media that I don't use. Um, but um, you know, it, it really just does go to show how much of an emergency situation this is and, and how um, it's been very difficult, uh, I'm sure, for um, schools and districts and states to, um, you know, really 
get underneath all of these things and provide some sort of foundational supports and guidance. So um, along those lines, we, we had a question about what the role of SEAs could be to encourage best practice. All of you all, uh, please, any one of you answer or jump in. What are some examples of, the, of um, either strategies or policies or suggestions that SEAs could um, make to, to help districts move along in the direction of better supporting English learners during this pandemic? Um, this is Julie. I'll start. Um, I think one of the things that states can do that is already sort of a role that they play is um, to take a, a, a sort of the, the tools that they use for monitoring and um, to use those in a, as gentle and helpful a way as they can. Um, but to say, you know, we want to be able to, you know, we want you to keep track of engagement of English learners and, and to um, uh, divvy that up by um, the following groups of, you know, newcomers or whatever other groups you want to look at. And um, we want to track the uh, number of provisional um, identifications you're making and um, just trying to to let the districts know sort of, again, not with the idea that that, that, matrix, that um, metrics are everything and data is everything, but that's sort of a, a, a framework that's already in place is for states to be setting expectations and saying what to look for. Um, so I would think that would be one way that um, states could, um, you know, leverage what they already do well um, and, and to really let the districts and schools know what they should be doing. Any other comments there? Um, this is Melissa. I would just add that I, I think that states can play great leadership in really uh, uh, fostering uh, these relationships and partnerships between school districts and, and CBOs. I think a lot of districts are already taking that on, but uh, for example, Colorado has really leveraged um, some state funding that they have uh, to uh, to really facilitate these types of partnerships to support uh, English learners and other and other uh, populations of students. So I think that's certainly an area where they can play a big role. And in California, I have to say that um, our state superintendent of public instruction and his staff has really tried to. Has, has has done some very good work in terms of really uh, looking at this issue of um, digital divide and really working across the state with corporations to try and get um, additional uh, devices out to the state. They've had millions that they have um, uh, actually distributed. They have provided a lot of resources. But I do have to say, uh, along with what Julie just talked about, that the districts are now having to write a report, it's due actually tomorrow, describing what their plan is for distance learning, hybrid learning, and when they return to in-person. And we're going to read those reports also. We're not sure that enough direction was given by the state to address the needs of English learners in those reports, and so we're going to want to see again how comprehensive that is and whether or not the states will the state will be reading those reports and really trying to highlight um, what districts are doing well and where there still is a need for them to improve. I think that's a place where the state could play a real role in terms of um, supporting districts for additional efforts they should be taking and highlighting those that are doing a good job. 
Lisa, a quick follow-up question to your comment about what's happening in Colorado with funding uh, for uh, to facilitate partnerships. Could you say a little bit more? We have a question from uh, someone in the audience about what what, the, what does that mean? What did they do? Respond in the chat, but um, so I for some of the CARES Act uh, money that came down from the federal level, uh, governors have. Uh, a small proportion of funding um, to be innovative with that. And I, um, our understanding is that the governor, um, so this is beyond the SCA, but um, state leadership, that they are thinking outside of the box and thinking about how to build a broader coalition to respond to the pandemic with respect to this, these issues. Thanks, thanks. We had another particular question that I'll open up to everybody. There, it's a, it's a challenge. There are two questions. Um, one is how you transition newcomer students to remote learning. And then related to that, I think, is how do you um, re-engage kids who've dropped out from remote learning? Both questions about re remote learning, both in kind of tough audiences, and how you keep kids engaged, how you get them engaged. I'll open that up to you all. So I'll be happy to start with this one um, because we've actually done a lot of work when we noticed this trend. Um, we moved our technology distribution to the EL enrollment sites, had a person stationed there to have a one-on-one -on -one session with every single new student that came in, showing them how to navigate the platforms, answering their questions, and making sure they knew the various steps before they left our enrollment office. And we started with that in um, June. I mean, I'm sorry, July is when we opened up our enrollment offices again. For the second part of the question of how we are engaging those that didn't quite engage, we started, we noticed that immediately after school started back up. And that's when we opened up our virtual hubs. And we looked at the data and it the EL data in particular, and put those hubs in areas where our data for English learners, where we were able to see that students were not engaging. We made sure those families knew about those sites, had the student and the family come over to us where we were able to give them one-on-one -on -one support. Um, and we're still servicing over a 1,000 families a week and supporting um, students right now in our virtual learning hubs. Thanks. Julie, I'm going to toss the final question to you. Um, this is um, a tough one. It's definitely a policy question. It was a question about English learner assessment and whether there should be adjustments of exit criteria or how you handle all that. What do we know? What, do you, what are recommendations? What should we be thinking about? Right. Uh, this is a, a really important thing, and um, I did notice that question, and, and I and I saw who asked it, and um, that person is a friend of mine, so I'll be getting in touch with her um, to talk about this more. Um, and uh, but I appreciate the opportunity to say that this is something that MPI is really concerned with. Our, our center has uh, always been looking at uh, accountability and, and its place in the education um, world, and um, this is something we're going to be looking at. But in since we don't quite have answers yet, I think one thing is really important in terms of EL identification is just to really make sure that kids are getting services, um, to sort of err on the side of keeping kids in services uh, who are already in it, who may or may not 
um, you know, qualify for exit under other, you know, circumstances, um, making sure that the kids that are provisionally um, identified are getting the services. That really is, is the most important thing right now. Um, and I think um, also not to um, try to do assessments under non-standard conditions because um, we really don't want to have data that um, is inaccurate or um, doesn't tell us what it, what we think it should be telling us. Um, I would I would really just counsel states to use other policy mechanisms to try to um, account for the fact that we don't necessarily have uh, EL uh, assessment data right now um, in terms of how the counts are done, in terms of how funding is um, provided, because it's, um, you know, again, we, we, we want to sort of separate out those issues of um, individuals, you know, making sure that we're we're getting the services to to individuals that they need, and and not make and not letting the accountability mechanisms run how we uh, how we do that. So, um, using other information to make sure that um, schools are um, offering the services that they should be offering, um, and and to keep track of um, you know how well students are doing um, beyond just the um, standardized EL tests, um, you know using those things in a more informal way to um, to support uh, schools and districts. I think is is probably the best advice that I can give at this point. Thank you, Julie, and thank you everybody in our audience today, and thank you to our panelists. Julie and Shelley especially, uh, we've learned a lot from you. We really apologize if any questions remain unanswered because there are several, you all have lots of questions, but we got to as many as we could in the time allotted and we will go back and review the questions and answer individually any question that we uh, that we missed. We'll try to do that. Uh, on the screen right now, you're seeing the resources that are available on our website. Uh, you've got the web addresses there. We hope you'll take advantage of these, um, at least to open up some of your own creativity and thinking. We know there's a lot out there. I also want to let you know that slides and audio from today's webinar will be available at MPI's website. Uh, I also want to note that for any reporters on the call who have further questions, please call Michelle Middlestead at 202-266. 1910. Again, thank you everyone. We look forward to working with you as we all sort of explore this um, new set of challenges and hopefully we'll come out on, on top um, on, on to benefit English learners. Thank you again for your interest.